Well, good morning and uh, greetings from Cornerstone Church in Ames. I'm one of the elders there and glad to get a chance to, uh, to talk to you guys today. Uh, so when I was growing up, my, uh, my dad was the part-time youth pastor at our church. And so one of the things he did for a number of years is like he would organize a, a youth ski trip. So they like pile a bunch of high schoolers on uh, a Greyhound bus uh, drive overnight uh, from Missouri, where I grew up, to Colorado, ski for a few days, and come back. And there's all kinds of, you know, kind of interesting things that happened when I was, you know, little and growing up, including things like, uh, oddly enough, going skiing with Brad Pitt. That, like, really happened. He went to the same high school I did. He went to my church, actually, uh, briefly. Um, not long enough, probably. <laughs> a, few, a few more Sundays would have helped him. But uh, the... Um, one of the things that I, I remember uh, learning uh, was something my dad pointed out. So, you know, we would be, I'd be skiing with my dad, and we'd be kind of watching people going down uh, the slopes as you're on the ski lift going up. And I remember my dad saying, Alex, I want you to watch something. I'm like, watch. Look, I want you to watch for the next person who falls down and watch what they do after they fall down. And what he started pointing out to me is this consistent pattern where people were skiing down the slope and they would fall, the first thing they would do is look around to see who saw. <laughs> Consistently. Now, if you're under the age of 10, not necessarily, but like adults, I mean, the first thing one would do is like, who saw me fall? Because it's not so much that falling in soft snow is bad, it's the shame of people seeing you wipe out, right? It's, it's reputation. And I started thinking about this, and I realized, as I got older, I am strongly motivated by reputation. Right? When I started asking myself questions like, why do I do a lot of the things I do? A lot of it's because I want to have a reputation for being good at this, or having this kind of character. What I really don't want is to fail and have other people see me fail. And so reputation can be one of the things that I think is a powerful motivator for us. But it's not just individuals that have reputations. Whole cities or whole cultures can have reputations. And you guys have been learning about this as you've been going through the book of Titus because Crete had a reputation. I think Matt was just talking about this last week. The reputation of Crete, this little island where Titus is pastoring, uh, is that the people there are liars, evil beasts. What do you have to do to get that nickname? Like evil beasts. Uh, and lazy glutton. That one, I always know what you have to do to get it, right? Uh, but like, that's not a powerful, like, that's a, it's a, it's a strong, bad reputation, right, that this uh, island of Crete had gotten. And I think part of what is tricky is when you care about reputation, if the culture you are in honors the wrong things, you can be tempted to conform to its version in order to get praise from it, even though the things that it's praising aren't right. I mean, there's a lot of that going on in Crete. A lot of what they were praising isn't right. And I wonder how the Cretans felt about their reputation. And my hunch is the Cretans actually kind of had mixed feelings about it. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a part of them that when people say bad things about you, you kind of respond to like, well, that's the way we are, and we're proud of it, right? There's, there's probably some of that that the Cretans had. But the reality is, to the extent this was true, and a lot of lying was common in their culture, no society where people are lying all the time is going to work very well. 
When God tells us to tell the truth, it's because truth is good for us and good for communities. Lying causes problems. If people really are doing evil or being lazy, all of those things cause problems. And so I, I suspect there's also a lot of people in Crete who realized that their reputation uh, was partly well-deserved and wasn't actually working out very well, right? It wasn't creating the kind of community that they wanted to live in. So you've, you've got individual reputation on the one hand, you've got community reputation on the other, but there's a, a middle level I want to talk about today, and that's family reputation. Families have reputations. And this is something, by the way, that in most of human history, in most cultures, people just intuitively get but I think American culture has been getting so individualistic that a lot of times we don't connect with this as much. Right? And in most cultures, though, when someone in your family does something good, that brings like praise to the whole family. And if someone in your family does something shameful, it brings shame to the whole family. That's just kind of the normal way most cultures and most of human history have thought. And I was thinking about this. It, it's probably the case that uh, in, in Boone and other places uh, in rural America, you may actually do a better job of connecting with what Paul is talking about here than people in urban areas would, right? Because in a smaller town, there's, there's going to be a lot of families that have been here for a long time. And it's a small enough number of people that it's easier to kind of get to know people, and so families can have reputations. But there's this new reality that happens when we become Christians, which is that we're not just part of a biological family. When we become Christians, we are adopted into the family of God. And when we are adopted into the family of God, we are part of a new family. The church is a family. And I think what Paul is particularly interested in, in Titus chapter 2, is how to teach people how to live in a way that will establish the right kind of reputation for the family of God. So let's look at Titus chapter 2, and we're going to learn uh, a little bit about this. We're going to first learn about some of the different roles people have within the family of God. Second, how we can promote the reputation of God and his family. And then third, we're going to learn about the centrality of the Redeemer who makes us a family. So let's start with Titus chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to start looking at uh, verses 1 through 6 says to Titus, but you are to proclaim things that are consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that the word, God's word, will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Let's just stop there for a second. So we've got these four different groups that Titus is supposed to instruct. He's supposed to talk to the older men, to the older women, and the older women are going to talk to the younger women. He's also supposed to talk to the younger men, right? So we've got these four groups. And uh, you know, Anastasia and I were talking about this uh, this morning. Anastasia is uh, supporting me, by the way, by wearing her Titus II t-shirt uh, today. Uh, 
And we realized that uh, we have both now like decisively crossed over into the older men and older women category. Uh, it was ambiguous for a while, but like we're leading a connection group right now with all these young married couples, and I'm 30 years older than them. Like I really am their dad, right? In terms of like age and all that kind of thing. But what we're trying to do is as older people, figure out how we can be teaching those who are younger than us what it looks like to live in the family of God, what it is to establish marriages that are honoring to the family of God and to God himself. Right? And so it's interesting to see like the, the specific things that are pointed out. If you start with the older men, right, they're to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. And when I, when I hear that list, it's got these strong echoes of what Paul says elsewhere when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's, it's, it's a similar kind of list. And I think what he's saying is, as older men, you are to be setting an example by living in a way that is worthy of respect. Right? Respect is something about how people perceive you. Live with a kind of character and integrity that wins respect. And also be modeling for those who are younger than you what it looks like to live as members of the family of God. Right? So, so there's this, this call uh, to the older men and a similar call to the older women. So he says, in the same way, the older women are to be reverent in behavior. And by the way, I think what he says, likewise, live reverent lives. He's basically saying all that stuff I basically said to the men, I'm saying that to you too, women. Right? You, you need to live lives that are respectful. You need to live lives that are full of self-control and faithfulness. But then there must have been some things going on in the churches in Crete that Paul knows about. He, he wants to point out two particular ways that the older women might be tempted to behave. And if they do, they're not going to be living lives that are worthy of respect. They're, they're not going to be living lives that are reverent in the way they live. And in particular, he says, I want you to avoid slander and getting drunk. Now, if you think about it, if you're going to try to say, like, what's the express route to a bad reputation? Going around slandering people and being habitually drunk are, are pretty, like, straightforward ways to be able to start gaining a reputation that's bad. And so what he's wanting to say to them is, no, like, as older women, you need to be setting an example by not giving in to those things and instead focus on teaching what's good, right? Because older women have a special role to play in helping train those women who are younger than them about what it looks like to follow Christ well. And so there, there's this encouragement for both of them. And I, I just want to pause for a second. If you are like me, Right, and you're in the older person category. I want you to think a little bit about how you measure success. Right, there's a lot of different ways you can measure success. You can measure success uh, by how much you get done, uh, efficiency, I guess. Uh, one of my wife's best quotes, uh, as Anastasia, I remember several years ago, saying, uh, "Efficiency is not a fruit of the spirit." Love is, joy is, patience is, kindness is. There's a lot of things that are. But the sheer number of things you got done today isn't what actually defines whether you are faithfully modeling what it looks like 
to live as a child of God. And so if I'm measuring my wife's success by how much I got done, that doesn't seem right. I would even say if I'm measuring it by my individual reputation, I've missed the boat. If I'm measuring it by how much money I've made or how much power or authority I have in my workplace, all of those things are missing the mark. What if instead I were to ask myself, what if I measured success in terms of whether I am faithfully setting an example and passing it along to the next generation of what it looks like to live in the family of God? Like, what if that was success? What if that was the thing we built our lives around? I think that's actually closer to the picture of what Titus is encouraging the church in Crete to do for those who are older. What about for those who are younger, right? So the younger women here, it looks like people who are, uh, they're married, by the way, they would have gotten married probably younger in their culture, and uh, pretty much everybody did. Like, women staying single for life was just typically not a cultural option back then. And the message is, again, I think to kind of live out the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, if you want to parallel, there's a lot of like parallels between Proverbs 31 and that description of what uh, a godly woman looks like and the kind of instruction the older women are supposed to be giving to the younger women. And it means loving their husbands, loving their children, being self-controlled, being pure, working at home, being kind, being in submission to their husbands, so that the word of God will not be Slander. In other words, I think there was a temptation in their culture for younger women not to live that way, you know, perhaps to be disrespectful to their husbands, to neglect their children, right, to, to not work hard at home. And he's saying, like, don't, don't live those kinds of lives, because if you live the kind of life I'm describing, that's actually going to increase the reputation of God's word as people see you living that kind of life. The, the funniest part to me of this whole passage, then, is when he gets to the young men. Uh, you know, like, everybody else got this, like, long list of things they're supposed to work on. Young men get one thing. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. There may be a whole bunch of fruit of the Spirit, but if young men can get the self-control thing down, that's actually pretty good. Self-control. Why is it that he's particularly emphasizing self-control? I think... Part of what's going on in Crete is I suspect the young men were not particularly known for their self-control. But lack of self-control is one of those things can, that can, again, easily cause people to act in ways that damage the reputation of God's word and God's family. And so he's wanting to encourage the young men to do this. And in fact, I actually think self-control is kind of a running theme across all four groups. The older men are supposed to model it. The younger men are supposed to do it. Uh, obviously, like restraining from excessive drinking and things like that, controlling the tongue are parts of self-control. The young women are supposed to be self-controlled. Why is this such a big deal? Well, a lot of the reality we experience is that in our sinful nature, even after we become Christians, we have a lot of deeply ingrained patterns of behavior in our bodies, in our flesh, that wants to continue acting in the old way. And it takes work and it takes time and often retraining over a period of time to learn new and different and better habits. But the payoff is significant. There's a, there's a study they did a long time ago. It's one of my favorite uh, studies that involved four-year-olds and marshmallows. 
So, so what they would do is they would take a four-year-old, put him in a room, and a kindly adult would come up and put a marshmallow on the table in front of them and say, here's this marshmallow. You can eat it if you want, but if you don't eat it and you wait until I get back in about 10 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And then they would just leave, and then it's just like the four-year-old and the marshmallow. <laughs> and it's a test of self-control, right? If you, if you could say no to the marshmallow for two for 10 minutes, you get two of them. But if you can't resist, you only get the one. By the way, if you're curious, you can actually Google this. There's like video. You can see like anguishing four-year-olds trying to like stop themselves from eating the marshmallow. It's great. Um, but what's interesting about the marshmallow test is the marshmallow test, they would track these kids who took the marshmallow test at age four. And they were able to predict probabilities of things like graduating from high school, ending up in jail, all, I mean, all kinds of like later patterns of behavior, drug addiction, were already being like foreshadowed by how you did with the marshmallow test when you were four. Self-control is one of the key things that all of us have to learn, and unfortunately, some of us grew up in families where this was really taught from when we were young, and some of us grew up in families where we weren't taught this at all. Here's what I want to say about the, the marshmallows and the four-year-olds. How the four-year-old did probably had more to do with the four-year-old's parents than them. Does that make sense? Right? If you've grown up with parents who promise you stuff all the time and never deliver, your chances of doing well on the marshmallow test are about zero, right? But if, if you have parents who've been modeling and teaching self-control, right, it becomes easier. So the point is this. We all start in different places as we're trying to learn these virtues. But as we learn them, we're, we're trying to learn a new way of what it looks like to function together as the family of God. And sometimes self-control requires some hard choices. Like I remember, uh, a long time ago, uh, when I was moving out to Iowa at the end of grad school, I thought it over and I realized that I had a self-control problem with television. And I had tried, like, well, I'll just watch less or I'll watch different stuff. And I tried and failed enough times that I decided, I think the best thing I could do for self-control right here would be just to not have a television. So I just got rid of the TV. And I look back, that was actually one of the best decisions I made. Eventually, we, you know, incorporated back in after I'd learned better self-control. But that was like years later. Years later. Some of you, like we we're, were talking about slander as one of the things uh, God's people are supposed to avoid. I don't know if you've noticed this. American culture has become completely desensitized to slander. People say false things about each other all the time. And maybe I'm just saying this because we just had the Iowa caucuses, right? Um, and, you know, I, I study politics for my job. But how often, when people are talking about politics, do you see something where, like, someone describes their opponent and their opponent's position, and the opponent then says, oh, that is an accurate and fair description of who I am and what I really think. Thank you for accurately describing that. Now we can talk about what we disagree about. It never happens. Nobody describes the other person fairly ever. There, you know, 
And you know what it is when you say false things about another group? You know, you, you take the worst member of the other group and portray the whole group as being that way? It's slander. That's the definition of slander. And in our culture, we do it so much, people don't even realize they're doing it. So it's going to take self-control to unlearn some of those habits. Just because someone says something bad about a group you don't like does not actually make it true and doesn't mean you should repost it on your social media. And if you have trouble doing that, delete the account. Get rid of it. Right? Start learning self-control. Right? And, and this, this needs to be part of the general pattern of God's people. Because the reputation of God matters, and no matter where you are in the social ladder, all of us have a role to play in conducting ourselves in a godly way for his glory. Look at verses 7 through 10. There's this pivot, and he's now talking to Titus specifically, and he says to Titus, Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Do you notice like in both of those passages there's a concern for how someone's behavior is going to cause God and his word to be um, perceived. In Titus's case, Paul knows that there are going to be opponents and critics. He knows that there is no way you can bring God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ into Crete and not meet opposition. Of course there's going to be opposition. Of course there are going to be people who are criticizing Titus. He expects that. But what he says to Titus is, okay, you know it's coming. So here's what I want you to do. Make sure you, as a leader in the church, live with integrity. Don't, by inappropriate actions, give ammunition to the people who want to speak badly about Jesus and his church. Be careful. And be careful with your words, with your teaching. Matt and I were actually just like chatting before the service and, you know, talking about the dynamic. He has to be careful with what he chooses to say because, you know, the, the sermons are recorded. You know, they're out there on the Internet. Anyone who wants to can go and listen to stuff and look for things. Right? So it's right to be careful. You want to teach God's word carefully and accurately, not to back down from what it says. But I'll also say be really careful you're a leader in the church to not be putting thus says the Lord behind things that are just your opinion. Right? Things like that are things that cause uh, God's word to be held in lower value. But this is interesting. Within the church, like Titus is the leader. See, it makes sense that people who are leaders, like when leaders blow it, the reputation of the whole group suffers. We get that. But you might be tempted to think that it's only the people who are at the top who affect the reputation of the church, but, but Paul is wanting Titus to realize even people who are at the lowest rung of society have an important role to play in establishing a good reputation for God's church. Because what he says is, tell the slaves, right? So these are people who are at the lowest level of society that they are to submit to their masters, 
to be well-pleasing, not talking back, not stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. Why? So that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So, so I, I think here's the picture. Imagine that in their culture you're a slave. Slavery in their culture was different than like American slavery. It wasn't race-based. Typically, you became a slave back then because uh, you were on the wrong side of a war. Like your side lost and they took some people uh, as slaves, right? So you ended up in this situation uh, through some situation like that. The normal thing if you were a slave would be one to say, one, I don't matter because I'm at the bottom. Two, to say, I really hate and resent the people who have put me in this situation. And so three, I'm going to do the minimum I can get away with to avoid punishment, right? That would have been like a normal way for a slave to, to function. So like if I can steal something and nobody's going to notice, you know, if you think, you know, people in our culture can easily rationalize stealing stuff at the self-checkout at Walmart, how much easier to try to rationalize stealing if you feel like you were unjustly enslaved, right? It would have been easy. What he's saying that to the slaves is, Precisely because people expect so little of you. Precisely for that reason. If you serve with your whole heart and do the best you can, people are going to start wondering why. Why are you doing more than you have to do? Why are you being trustworthy even when you don't know anyone's watching? And that integrity that is unexpected is something that is going to make the teaching about Jesus, it says, more attractive. It's going to adorn it. Because here's what I think is true. I think it is easy to criticize Christianity. And it's easy in part because sometimes Christians do blow it. And we, we do things that make, you know, provide ammunition, ammunition for people. It's also easy because there are things that are sins that the Bible says are a sin that we don't want to hear about, and so we, we defensively kind of react against it. But I think what Paul realized, what he's trying to help Timothy see, is it's actually really hard to criticize the fruit of the Spirit when you see it actually lived out day after day after day after day. That makes sense. Like you, if you're a co you have a coworker, and every day that coworker shows up, and what you see is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. It's going to be hard to keep saying bad things about that person five years later if day after day you're seeing those same character qualities. And so, so there's this opportunity for the church to reorient itself around those ideals. But how do we do that? And this is the crucial last part. We're going to see that the redeemer of the family is the one who helps us in our roles promote the reputation of God and his family. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. So here's the first thing I want you to know about the family of God. The family of God is founded upon the grace of God, not our performance and our roles. So it is right for us to care about the reputation of God's church. But ultimately, we didn't become the family of God because we were all doing everything right. And we don't remain in the family of God because we never blow it. What this verse says is the grace of God, the unearned favor of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. What makes us the people of God is the grace of God. So here's one of the key things. You know, I was talking about how in most cultures and most of history, like the reputation of the family was a big deal, right? So they, they kind of get what Paul was saying here. Not all of that was good. You know what happens in a lot of those cultures when somebody in your family really blows it? You disown them. Because the only way to protect the honor of the family, when somebody in the family really blows it, is to disown them and say they're not part of us anymore. That is the exact opposite of what the family of God is supposed to be like. Because the family of God is founded upon grace, and forgiveness is one of the defining features of the family of God. So if you're sitting here thinking, I've already done things that harmed the reputation of God and his family, or you're afraid that you're going to do things like that in the future, here's the news. You probably will. That doesn't mean that we don't lament it, but it doesn't define our identity because the family of God is based upon the grace of God. And it is by grace that we are forgiven. And we as broken people, when we do mess up, have opportunities to point to how great the grace and forgiveness of Jesus is. So we learn from this that our Redeemer has made us a family by grace. We also learn from this that the glory that really matters is not our individual glory. And it's not actually even the glory of a particular church or a particular church family. What really matters is the glory of Jesus himself. Look again at the verse. It says that we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've never thought about this, but in the Lord's Prayer, the very first prayer request is that the name of God would be hallowed, that it would be held in high honor. At the end of the day, my reputation doesn't matter, and your reputation doesn't matter, and actually Stonebridge Church's reputation doesn't matter. What matters at the end of the day is the reputation of Jesus, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is the one who is one day going to come back in his full glory and rule over this entire planet. That's the future. And so what we want to do is even now, while we in hope wait for his glorious return, to be living in ways that would glorify him and lead others to glorify him because he is the one who is actually the focus. The third thing I think we learn is that it is grace that actually instructs and motivates us in how to live the kinds of lives that are being described in this passage. Did you notice that? 
this grace of God that has appeared to all people is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So in other words, I think what he's saying is this Bible that we have, the Word of God, that is itself a gift of grace. We are not entitled to the Bible. We are not entitled to God's word. But in his grace, he has given us his word to instruct us so that we know what a godly life actually looks like. And not only has by grace he instructed us in what we're supposed to do, by grace, he is also motivating us. If you orient your life where your motive is primarily reputation. You will burn out and probably eventually become tired and bitter because it is too much. But if instead of having reputation be the main goal, you instead fix your eyes on Jesus and you think about the grace that he has given you, a grace that you will never be able to repay, that can instill in us a love that allows us to live the kind of lives that are being described here. This is, the, this is the interesting thing. You don't live the sort of life that brings a good reputation to God's family by making reputation itself the orienting principle of your life. Instead, if you fix your eyes on the glory and grace of Jesus and allow yourself to see how loving he is, for people who don't deserve it. That love and that grace is what transforms us and helps us to be able to live that life, whatever stage of life we're in, whether we're old or young, whether we're men or we're women. That is the message. But I, there's one more verse, and I haven't talked about this, and uh, uh, I didn't tell Matt I was going to say this, so he has no idea what I'm about to say here, but it's in the text, and so we're going to say it. So verse 15. It says, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So remember, the book of Titus is written by Paul, Paul, an older man, to Titus, who's a young pastor. And so, Matt, verse 15 is to you, right? You and your elder team are being charged to proclaim these things in Titus 2, right? So your job is to encourage the older men and younger women in this church to live the kind of lives that Paul is talking about. Your job is to help encourage so that the younger men and the younger women are living lives that bring honor and glory to God. And not only do you need to encourage, sometimes you need to rebuke. If, if people are not doing these things, part of the job as a pastor is to help them see so that they can redirect and change course. That is part of the weight that pastors and elders have within the family of God. But now that I've picked on Matt for a little bit, I want to say to the rest of you, it is your job to want him to do his job. Most of us like being encouraged a lot more than we like being rebuked. And sometimes, even when we're encouraged, we get defensive. Like, I don't need encouragement. I got this on my own. But defensiveness within the family of God does not help us be the family of God. So my encouragement would be, 
as a family of God, so desire that Jesus would be held in high honor and high glory. That when you read through Titus 2, your deepest desire is that you and the other people in your church would be growing day by day to be more like that picture for his glory. And you want that so much that you can eagerly accept correction, eagerly accept encouragement, because what you're being encouraged and corrected in is the very thing that is actually your desire, to be that kind of people of God. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross to leave us as we are. It says, verse 14, he did this to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Eager to do good works. Let us as Christians be people who are eager for opportunities to do good works, to help those who are in need, to demonstrate through our actions what the love of Christ looks like. And so to be light and salt in a world that desperately needs it. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us in our different places and roles to live faithful lives. Help us, Lord, to love you, to live reverently, to say no to slander, to say no to drunkenness or other addictions, to exhibit self-control, to, to use our words in ways that bring honor and glory to your Help us to want these things, Jesus, because we love you, and we want you to receive the glory that is rightly yours. Lord, help us to love you more. And maybe, God, even more, help us to know how much you already love us. Even in our brokenness, even in the ways we fall short, even in the ways we have harmed the reputation of God, the grace you have given us, God, is so powerful. Help us to see how big your grace is for us. Help us, Lord, to be a family that brings honor to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.